Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. One of my favourite pieces in the Gawthorpe collection is thought to be a herb pillow. It dates from the end of the 16th century and it's worked in silk and metal pearl with spangles and metal lace edging. It depicts a really cheerful array of flora and fauna from peas in pods to insects and there's even a snail. It conjures a country garden out of cloth. I like to think that the butterfly depicted here is a nod to the silk moth, which provides us with the raw materials to create such threads. In the last episode, we heard about the importance of the silk route and the influence of Chinese design in Europe. But how did silk become such a luxury product? And how do we get this lustrous fabric from a humble moth? My name is Arati Prasad. I am a biologist and I'm a writer and I'm very interested in silk as a fabric, but my first entry into, into silk was as a, uh, a material for bioengineering. So I'm very interested in the fabric, but also in the history and in the sort of unexpected future of, of the material. So could you tell me about the origins of silk? The... Um, Silk that is best known is from China, very, very firmly from China. And it came from a moth that was wild. Now, wild moths had been used for silk in many parts of the world, um, you know, Mexico, and uh, several places in Africa, certainly in India, in Europe. Um, and it was also used in China. And they come from different species of wild moths. The one in China is called Bombyx mandarina. And we know that it was domesticated, as all farm animals and familiar animals were domesticated over a period of time and through breeding and inbreeding. And that first happened in a Neolithic culture in China between 7,000 and 4,000 years ago. So we have in China... About five and a half thousand years ago, the tomb of a child um, with a, a representation of a, a silk moth and a larva. Um, also, there have been fabrics already at that time of silk from the domesticated moth. So first you take the wild moth called Bombyx mandarina, and over years, millennia, it is bred to form a new species called Bombyx mori. With every farmed animal, every domesticated animal, something very interesting happens. They lose the characteristics that made them wild and they gain characteristics that are important to us. And what this means in terms of the Bombyx mori silk moth is that the ancestor it came from was small. It was dark. That means it camouflaged well in its habitat. It also flew very fast. 
the Bombex Maury's lost all of its colors. So it's a very boring, very clumsy moth that can't fly. It has vestigial wings. Um, so it can't really go anywhere. But the females became bigger. So their abdomens became bigger. And that was in order for them to hold more eggs. The other thing that happened was the quality of silk became um, better and you got more of it. If you were a Neolithic Chinese farmer who, were collect who was collecting wild silk in a, in a forest, the silk would, would be quite um, hard to unravel and would be smaller uh, in amount. And the other thing that happened with the uh, domesticated silk, so Chinese silk, is that it became easier to dye easier to unreal. So what you have is a, a moth that over the period of a, a couple of months, say, transforms from an egg to several stages called instars of caterpillar development. And then it, it wraps itself in a, a cocoon made of silk. And it's a very beautiful process to watch the caterpillar moving its head side to side, um, producing silk from its silk glands and wrapping itself in this cocoon. Um, that if you unravel, gives you from 700 to 1,500 meters of a, a pure thread of silk. What the Chinese did was to boil the cocoons so that the moth would never emerge from them. And that's how they were able to reel one seamless strand. Because when you use wild moths, or if you were to let the moth escape from the cocoon, that's called peace silk. You can still do it because you don't kill the animal. But what happens is the animal sort of vomits uh, enzyme, a chemical, to release itself from its cocoon. And in doing so, number one, it stains the cocoon. It goes a little bit red, uh, a little rusty red, but it also makes a hole in the cocoon so that you have to then tie those um, strands of thread together. The question of why silk or Chinese silk became such a luxury commodity is a very interesting question because what we do know is that silk of wild moths were used in different places, including Europe um, and China. And it's just that the Chinese domesticated uh, silk moth to produce um, a different type of silk. But when they did that, the quality of the silk really improved. Um, you have a a, a, a strand of silk that if you look at it under a, a very powerful microscope would have triangular rounded edges and it's quite prismatic so it also takes up dyes better the, the kind of sheen that you get with um, bombix mori silk is really something quite remarkable and i think it's it was unexpected it, it wasn't like anything that people had seen before so the sheen of it, the, the reflective quality. The incredible luster, I suppose, this is what we're seeing that makes it, the luster itself looks very luxurious, I suppose. Yes, and that's about how it reflects the light. So with wild silk, uh, they have different qualities, which are also very important. There's uh, the uh, Tassa silk and Muga silk and Eri in India. I was so surprised when I first saw them because I, I didn't believe they were silk. I thought it was a, a thick cotton or a wool. And, and they're good for cold weather. Um, but, but the Chinese silk, it had a very different quality. It was sort of ethereal. And when, you know, there are records from, from Rome that uh, when... Uh, Rome was fighting Parthia, so the area of Iran, the, the Parthians had flags, standards made of silk, Chinese silk, 
and the Roman soldiers were terrified because they'd never seen any, the sun hit it and they'd never seen anything like it. I mean, imagine if you'd, you'd just never seen that. You, what you had in Europe was linen, you had wool, you probably had a bit of cotton coming through with the Roman Empire. Um, but but there, was, there was nothing like that. And, and what the Romans did was um, they, they were able to get some silk from China they got that silk through Parthia, through this region that they were fighting with. That region of, um, of, of Iran, around that area, um, was a barrier to China. So they, they guarded that uh, silk. There was, a, there was a, a, a Chinese writer called Yu Huan in 265 CE. He wasn't a historian, but he was very well regarded and he had compiled a lot of um, information about the countries to China's west, including India, Parthia, um, which I, I read as a region as being, think of it as around Iran. And also he wrote about Rome, which he called Lijian or Dakin. And he said, um, this country produces fine linen. So Rome, the Chinese uh, writer said, Rome produces fine linen. It is said that they not only use sheep's wool, but also bark from trees or the silk from wild silkworms so he knew about that and they do that to make brocade mats pile rugs woven cloth and curtains and all of them are of good quality and with bright colors but what he said and this is corroborated from western and chinese sources is that the romans regularly make a profit from obtaining chinese silk unraveling it and making hu which is western silk and he said, this is why this country trades with Parthia, Iran, this area of Iran, across the middle of the sea. He said, they, the Romans, have always wanted to communicate with China, but Parthia, jealous of their prophets, would not allow them to pass. But you have, say, 5,000 years ago in China, this, this beautiful new kind of silk was developed. And I think that some of it did trickle west over the years, because when Alexander the Great defeated Parthia when he went to Persia. <laughs> One of the records says that he took the armor off of his breast and he clothed himself in silk. You know, he kind of became soft. And you could imagine that that silk would have gone back to the, the Greek lands in, in Northern Greece where he had come from. And then what happened? So this is about, you're looking at about 300 BC, right? So let, let's think about 5,000 years ago in China, they make this silk just over say around two and a half thousand years ago, the silk was known to Europeans um, because they'd seen it. Um, and that kind of went to Greece. And Greece had a lot of money and power. And then Greece loses its power and its territory and its wealth. Um, and it's almost like the silk becomes forgotten because of it. Because later, about 2,000 years ago, so in the sort of 100 years BCE, the Romans are surprised when they see the, the silken flags of the Iranians, and they're shocked by it. So it's almost like it was known and then forgotten, and then the Romans saw it again. But when the Romans saw it again, they had no idea where it came from. Bear in mind, these people had their own silk. They had wild silk. But they didn't seem to know where it came from, because record after record says that the Romans thought that the Chinese scraped silk 
from the barks of trees. It was a fleece that grew in trees. You hear this over and over again, that what they believed was that it was something plant-based or something related to, to trees. Um, so they had no idea where, where it came from, but they did get it. And when they got it, as uh, Yuhuan says, they brought it to Rome and they unraveled it uh, because I guess it was so precious. They unraveled the threads and they made clothes that were so transparent as to be immodest. People complained about how you can see a woman's body under, under her um, clothes. So what we're talking about is the passage of either strands of silk or fabrics that came from China. Nobody knew about the moth in the West. It's not clear that anyone knew about the Chinese secret weapon, which was the Bombix Mori moth. And so at what point did that, the technology, the sericulture, were using the Bombex Mori moth, at what point was did that come to Europe? There is a story, and that story is repeated and repeated and repeated. But I don't understand how that story could be true. So the story goes like this. In 522 AD, so after Christ, there was an emperor of Constantinople called Justinian. And, you know, remember, this is Roman Empire and they love their silk. Um, in about 100 years uh, after Christ, so 400 years before that, we know Roman emperors had it. Julius Caesar had curtains made of silk. And, and um, it, it was very expensive. So I guess someone had the idea that, you know, if we can access the Chinese technology, we should be able to make the silk in Europe. So there's a story and it comes from the records of a, a guy called Procopius of Caesarea. And he was like a secretary to one of Justinian's generals. And he, he has many re written records. And he talks about um, the, the, the bringing of um, the eggs of the silkworms from China to towards Europe. Uh, I've read that uh, these are Nestorian monks. So they're Christian monks who live somewhere east of Turkey. And they uh, said that they could bring these eggs. They can bring the eggs in the mulberry trees. And the story goes that they put them in hollowed out canes, walking sticks, uh, they went to China, they got the eggs, they hid them in the sticks on pain of death. They brought mulberry tree, tree plants with them. And they brought that to Turkey, to Constantinople, and then from Constantinople went to Greece and Italy. And, it, and that was the beginning of the of, of silk in, in Europe. Now, there's a bit of a debate about where those monks would have gone to had that happened. Because people say Saris or Sarinda as being um, China. But there was a, there is some thinking that it could be a number of places from Kashmir to Khotan, um, sort of west of the Oxus and more towards um, Europe and not as far as China. Because as far as we know, nobody got into that boundary of China. But the other point is, if you were a monk walking from anywhere in that region to Constantinople, it would have taken you two years. The moth life cycle is around two months. So what, depending on the temperature, you know, in colder temperatures, the eggs tend to not develop. But what was it that they were doing with these eggs? 
And how were they feeding them along the way? It's much more likely to me that they were stopping in certain places if that is how it happened and that they very slowly brought the descendants of the original eggs that they brought towards Europe. And I, I'm trying to use genetics to track this. I'm looking for data which compares the DNA of, there's a genome of European Bombyx mori from, say, you know, uh, the eastern parts of Europe and towards the west with the one in China. Because I think maybe that will tell us something that close, more closely uh, approximates uh, the truth. From what I understand, the Silk Road, now the, the thing that we call the Silk Road today was named Die Seidenstrasse, the Silk Road, in 1877. So this is very, very recent. And it was named the Silk Road by the German geographer, uh, he's called Baron Ferdinand von Richthofen. But what we do know is that that route is a route that passed from the, the western regions of China through land and sea routes. So it could have gone around India, Horn of Africa, through the sea, but also over land um, towards Europe. But that road, it, it, it really did in a way pre-exist because two millennia before von Richthofen, this region of Iran, Medea, um, already controlled the roads of, e of the east-west trade. So in 200 BC, around 200 BC, there was a historian called Polybius of uh, Megapolis, and he called this, this region, the Medea, the most powerful of all Asian countries, and it dominated that route. And what they traded were sheep and goats and horses, and a clover used for fodder, for food and medicines. But it, but it also seems, because this Chinese silk ended up in Rome, that they also traded in the... Um, Chinese Bombyx Mori silk. Now that's that's 2000 years before we have this concept of the Silk Road. So I think the Silk Road was a long existing um, pa passageway where goods traveled, but in a way that's not even the most interesting thing because cultures also traveled, languages traveled, genes traveled. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe religions, we had, we had Buddhism, in different places that also influenced how silk was used. You know, whether people chose to use silk that killed the moths or, or that uh, allowed them to survive, you're sacrificing a bit of their quality. So that road always existed. What we do know historically is that what's called at the start of the Silk Road, I suppose, was a trade deal that was negotiated by... Um, a king, a very powerful king who is called in the West Mithridates, but whose name was Mehrdar II. And he ruled a great expanse of, of that region. Um, and it included parts of so Uzbekistan as well as um, Iran. So think of it as a broad region. And in 120 BC, he welcomed a Chinese delegation at his court. And, and a year later, he made an alliance with the great Han Emperor of China. 
in this, in this Han region of China, in their capital, they were already at that time casting images of silkworms in gilt bronze. They carved it from jade, which was precious. They buried it with ancestors. It was like an allegory of metamorphosis. So, so the dead might be invested with some kind of transformative powers and travel to the next world along their glistening thread. So we know they had a long connection in, in Han, in that part of Han China with um, silk. So, so this um, Parthian king had a lot of regions and he, one of them was Fergana and Fergana was the outermost outpost under the influence of the Parthians. And it was home to these um, short-legged, powerful horses that were very hardy and very agile. And this was also the time that Han China's elite military machine, the imperial power was growing and they really needed new sources of animals for their for their cavalry. And that's how the trade deal seems to have been struck and that allowed the first uh, the first official trade of Chinese fabric and Chinese silk, not the moths, but the silk to start to leave China and enter the West. Silk has been a luxury product for millennia, desired by many cultures around the globe. The 16th century herb pillow at Gawthorpe also tells us this, using tiny, intricate buttonhole embroidery stitches to recreate wildflowers found around Britain, things like carnations, daffodils, honeysuckle and columbine. But it was created at a time when global exploration was increasing, with violent consequences. And in 1600, the East India Company was certified by a royal charter from Elizabeth I. We'll revisit this later in the series when we look at cotton. Silk's place as a luxury textile helps to explain why it was the first fabric to be recreated artificially, which could have disastrous consequences. My next guest, Paul Blunk, physician and professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, is the author of a book called Fake Silk about the history of rayon. Importantly, rayon was the very first artificial textile, or I should say artificial silk because rayon wasn't the name that was used at that time. And there were several different ways of getting there. Rayon and other artificial silks were all made from and are made from cellulose. And the source of the cellulose is predominantly wood pulp, but you can make it from other sources of cellulose. For example, the remnants of cotton production. You don't want to use good cotton that can be woven into thread itself, but there is debris from cotton. You can make it from other plant sources as well which over time have come to be attempted or used in the process. So what was dangerous about rayon manufacture? The simple answer is quite a lot. And that danger all emanates from the carbon disulfide or certain byproducts of that work. Carbon disulfide is a fascinating toxic material, which has a myriad of adverse effects on the human system. In fact, Carbon disulfide was first used not in artificial silk manufacturing, but as a 
rubber vulcanizing agent. And it was in the rubber vulcanizing industry in the mid-19th century that the adverse effects of carbon disulfide first became recognized. It was hard to miss it because what happened to people heavily exposed to carbon disulfide as they were in those vulcanizing factories is they went insane. So acute insanity, severe mental disturbance in workers was the first and the most severe effect of carbon disulfide exposure or overexposure, I should say. And this was already reported in the mid 19th century. There was a famous example of a rubber factory in the United Kingdom where they had to have open windows because carbon disulfide on top of everything else is rather explosive. So they had open windows, but then they had to put bars on the windows because so many working people would jump out in fits of insanity. But as time went on and exposure levels became somewhat lower, and that is as the rayon industry began to grow, uh, a lot of other uh, bad side effects became evident, including other effects on the nervous system, loss of nervous function, sensation, motor ability, but also more ominously with chronic exposure, it became clear that Parkinsonism was an effect of carbon disulfide as well. As if that wasn't bad enough, over time it also became clear, and this was in the 1950s and 60s, that chronic lower level exposure to carbon disulfide was associated with greatly increased risk of heart attack, especially at a young age, as well as risk of stroke. When do we see the development of the first artificial silk and when do we see it become known as rayon? Artificial silk by various competitive processes was introduced at the very end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th. In the first decades of the 20th century, the viscose rayon process became the dominant process. In the 1920s, the term for that, rayon, was introduced to cover all the processes, so any regenerated cellulose artificial textile. But de facto, really, we were talking about viscose rayon all along by that period. And throughout the 1930s, in a time of worldwide depression, the rayon industry was growing logarithmically, with some of the key centers of production being the United States, Japan, Italy, Germany, Great Britain, but with other major players as well, including the Netherlands, for example. And then during World War II, rayon production was a, a major strategic product, both for the Allies and for the Axis powers. The difference being that uh, rayon production under the Axis powers used slave labor across the continent of Europe in its production. And then after the war, uh, rayon started to have competitors from the petroleum-based synthetics that we now are more familiar with in many ways, such as polyester and related products and nylon, which took off after World War II, all of which are not cellulose-based, but petroleum 
based and are tied into the economics of the petrochemical industry. Now, rayon as a fiber has shifted in its location of manufacturing to Asia, to China and India and Indonesia. Was viscose rayon quick to catch on with consumers? Viscose rayon was very quick to catch on with consumers because it was cheap, because it was widely marketed. It was meeting a niche use. And as I said, throughout the Great Economic Depression, uh, production of rayon was increasing almost logarithmically. It also had some military applications which didn't hurt it, including reinforcing tires for warplanes uh, and use in parachutes and other, other applications. Why do you think there was such a desire to synthesize silk? Like, why do we view it as such a luxury? Silk, it should be noted, has been a luxury product since Roman times in the West and in China, certainly before that, because it is so soothing to the touch and uh, so glistening, depending on the process. So it stands to reason that trying to develop an imitation product that would have some of the same properties would have a commercial economic viability. And trying to create artificial sackcloth would be less appealing or at least less profitable. And another interesting thing about artificial silk is the kind of cultural resonance it started to take on in the 30s. There was this appeal, but there was also something about it that became a symbol of cheapness and tawdriness and even loose sexual mores. There was an important German novel in the Weimar period that translates as the artificial silk girl about a young woman who moves to Berlin and uh, becomes quite loose in her morals. And of course, she loves artificial silk underwear and talks about it a lot. Interestingly, that that silk, uh, that type of silk was not that specifically that she was talking about was called Bemberg silk. And it's a, a version of cupramonium silk because it's in a way the silkiest of the fake silks Again, the reason why it's currently the lining of bespoke tailoring. What were the benefits of artificial textiles? I would have to say that, of course, it's because it's uh, artificial silk is cheaper than true silk, it makes it available to a broader public. It is argued nowadays that this is a eco-friendly approach to textiles, which somewhat boggles the imagination. Yes, you could raise a forest in a renewable fashion, uh, but there's nothing renewable about the chemically intensive side of it. So that to me is uh, a bit of a marketing ploy. There's a lot of marketing, for example, of viscose rayon made with bamboo as if that's sort of eco-friendly and uh, 
I think it belies the, the underlying issues. For the, the Germans and the Italians in the 30s, they had a very important economic political approach to raw material independence. And of course, they, they were largely cut off from cotton, for example. And this was seen as a way of um, stretching out textile sources. In fact, the German Historical Museum in Berlin has a whole sheet of the yellow stars that Jews were forced to wear made out of rayon, probably with slave labor making it as far as that goes. Basing everything on cotton is not a walk in the park. And it really does depend on each, in each case, how things are made. So cotton, for example, which doesn't rely on petrochemicals, can be extremely pesticide intensive. So there are some newer, this, uh, newer rayon techniques that do not use carbon disulfide. The chemical that they rely on is actually fairly sparse in terms of information on its toxicity. But more simplistic than that, there are ways of having a rayon manufacturing process very tightly enclosed so that there is very little exposure to carbon disulfide to the working people. And when you do that, it's also more uh, environmentally friendly because you're not also putting it up in the smokestack you are recycling the carbon disulfide and reusing it. As Paul shows us, the pursuit of luxury goods such as silk could have horrifying repercussions, and there can be a real dark side to much textile production. But what can textiles teach us about life and death in ancient history? Join me next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast, where I'll be exploring linen from the Egyptian pharaohs to the mills of Belfast. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and on Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>